This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. This is Anand Venigala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest for today is Professor Robert Alter. He is returning to the Letter of Liberty podcast to discuss the complete translation of the Hebrew Bible, which is entitled The Hebrew Bible, A Translation and Commentary. He began the project with Genesis, where he provided his original translation straight from the original Hebrew text. He later continued with the David story, his translation of First and Second Samuel, which I discussed with him in a previous episode. As of now, he has completed the whole Hebrew Bible and it will be coming out this December of this year published by W. W. Norton and Company. So I'm pleased to welcome Professor Alter back to the Letter of Liberty. What was your motivation for translating the Hebrew Bible? When did you first discover that you would be able to do this? Well, it, it happened almost by accident. Uh, I was approached by an editor from W. W. Norton, a very able person named Steve Foreman, back in the early 90s. And uh, he suggested that I do a, um, a Norton critical edition. For your listeners, these are editions designed as college texts with um, uh, introductions and then um, all kinds of ancillary materials at the end of the book, at the back of the book. Uh, and he said you could do something from Kafka, because I had just written on Kafka, or something from the Bible. And I said, well, uh, somebody could make a very nice Norton Critical Edition of the book of Genesis, because there's a lot of good material to put at the back of the book. But the problem is that there's something wrong with all the um, existing translations. And were I to do this, I would have to do my own translation. After some negotiation, it turned out that it was not a Norton Critical Edition, but a, a straight translation. And now let me explain very briefly why I said there's something wrong with, with all the existing translations. The, um, the Hebrew Bible uh, is, uh, it may have a few low points, but, but it's uh, quite extraordinary stylistically, both in the narrative prose and in the poetry. And the style is essential to the meaning. You can't separate the two. And I felt that um, the existing English versions did very little to adequately convey the power and the subtlety of the Hebrew style. Uh, the best approximation, actually, is the King James Version, but there are various problems there. Like, what are some of the problems that are in the King James Version as you perceive these problems? Your voice is fading again. I'm sorry. Okay. What are some of the problems you perceive with the King James Version? Oh, well, uh, to be, there is, of course, a problem of accuracy. That, that is, uh, uh, Christian Hebreus uh, in the early 17th century did not have the grasp of biblical Hebrew that we have today, and they make uh, many mistakes along the way, uh, some of them minor, some of them real howlers, 
and also they translate pretty systematically many terms uh, with a, a kind of Christological bent that does not uh, accurately represent the, the values of the Hebrew terms. So the we have salvation for a term that means something like rescue, getting out of a tight fix. We have uh, repeatedly soul, where there's no soul in biblical Hebrew, there's no concept of a soul, and so forth. So that's one problem. A second problem, of course, obviously, the language has become archaic and is not terribly accessible to us. But the third problem is, well, uh, the King James translators did pretty a pretty good job with the narrative prose. Uh, I think because they hewed to the uh, syntactic contours of the Hebrew in a way that the modern translators do not do. Um, Nevertheless, uh, the, the, there, there are a lot of things that are off. In the poetry, for example, they, they, there are magnificent lines in the King James Version, and then there are many, many lines which are um, uh, arrhythmical. Or feel clunky. Because they, they, they weren't listening to the, uh, the Hebrew rhythms, and, and they don't get the compactness of the Hebrew, which is very important, especially for the poetry. Yeah, I completely agree. For example, in I think this might be one of the better examples of King James translations, but in Isaiah 60, the few verses it has is like, Arise, shine, for thy light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. The Hebrew reads something like this, Kumi ori kiva orech ukvod Adonai alaik zarach, which is much more concise. Right. And, oh, I agree. So uh, let us continue. And as for the prose, here's how your translation sounds for my listeners in Genesis chapter 12. And the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your land and your birthplace and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and those who damn you I will curse, and all the clans of the earth through you shall be blessed. And Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went forth with him, Abram being seventy-five years old when he left Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his nephew, and all the goods they had gotten, and the folk they had brought in Haran. And they set out on the way to the land of Canaan, and they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram crossed through the land of the site of Shechem, to the terebinth of the oracle. The Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your seed I will give this land. And he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he pulled up his stakes from there for the high country east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel to the west, and Ai to the east. And he built there an altar to the Lord, and he invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed onward by stages to the Negev. So I see all the ands that you kept in, which is the translation of the wow particle in the Hebrew original. Right. And the King James Version, for the most part, does this very well, which is one of the reasons why I still read it, and I don't often read a lot of modern translations regularly. And one of the things I've heard is that the vowel particle doesn't always mean and, it could also mean but, therefore, but for the most part you keep it as and. Why is that? Well, 
For the most part, it does mean and. Now, I don't know that it ever means therefore. It can mean but, uh, and uh, sometimes there are simply semantic signals that you, you see that the clause that follows the vav uh, is in an antithesis to the clause that precedes it, and uh, sometimes there are other signals. So when I think it clearly means but, I translate it as but. However, the the larger issue is this. Um, The modern translations entirely repackage the syntax, and they eliminate, I would say, Three quarters, as this is a wild guess, but it couldn't be much less than that. They, they eliminate three quarters of the ands by, by uh, 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 substituting participial clauses, substituting however, because, uh, whereas, and, and so forth. And this is really a betrayal of the Hebrew in two ways. One is, uh, and uh, I like the way you, you uh, read my translation of Genesis 12, there is a kind of, there is an important rhythm in the, the forward movement of the narrative prose. And w- when you, t- the ands very much play a part in, in that rhythm, and when you take most of the ands out, you destroy the rhythm. The the, the second issue is um, that um, the and connecting two clauses w- with an and means that you're not specifying the exact relation between the clauses. Is it causal or something else. And the Hebrew writers often exploit that ambiguity uh, to open up different possibilities. For example, um, when after David has his big blowout with his wife Michal in uh, 2 Samuel 6, uh, they insult each other. This is when he returns, when he comes to Jerusalem uh, dancing before the ark. And then the episode concludes and Michal, the daughter of Saul, did not have a child to her dying day. Now, um, if you translate that as therefore Michal, but the the daughter of Saul did not have a child or a dying day. Uh, You're saying something that the writer did not want to say. That is, he didn't want to necessarily spell out that that the fact that she did not have a child was a consequence of her clash with David. So uh, I, I think that kind of specification and explanation is to be avoided in a translation. I agree, actually, and I like the way you translated that verse because there's a lot of ambiguity. Usually a lot of translators imply that Mikal was being dishonoring on that day, and in many ways she was, but at the same time I think David was insensitive in some ways. 
and it would definitely make sense that David would refrain from Michal at that moment or after that moment. And before he just got her back because he wanted to add to his harem and to consolidate his power, which may not be wrong, sure. but it definitely Absolutely. betrays a kind of insensitivity, especially if you compare him with the man that Michal ended up with for a moment. And regarding biblical poetry, you translate it interestingly in different ways from the prose. The King James Version it has a different kind of music from yours. For example, in Job 38, I'll read a few verses from the King James and then I'll get to your version. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest, or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, or who laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sank together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? This is your version. Where were you when I founded earth? Tell, if you know understanding. Who fixed its measures, do you know, or who stretched a line upon it? In what were its sockets sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? I noticed that in the diction and the words you use, it's very similar to the King James, but it's definitely more concise and less archaic, per se, and I think it's to an advantage, in your, in my humble opinion. Right, and, and of course, I um, avoid... Uh, words like thereof and whereupon, uh, which um, I think could have been avoided in the 17th century also. Uh, But uh, uh, they, um, in a way, it's uh, the the 17th century translators were were trying to get a literal... um, uh, English equivalent of a construction of the Hebrew, which I think here is a, a, a mistake. Uh, and but by avoiding those, of course, you get uh, a greater compactness. In the Hebrew, at least in verse four, it says, "Efo hayata beyesedi aretz haged im yadata bina." And now to verse five, "Mi sam memada haki teda o mi nata alehaka." Alma Adaneha Hatebahu O Mi Yara Eben Binata Beren Yahat Kokhev Boker Wairukal Bene Elohim. How did I read that, by the way? That sounds good. Thank you. I don't know a lot of ancient Hebrew natively, but I am trying to at least get some connection to it, so I hope I did a good job for my listeners. Yes, you did. Thank you. So, maybe, by the way, I, I should say one thing, that, that my experience of the Hebrew Bible was first in Hebrew, that is, beginning as a teenager. So I, I relate very much to the texture of the original language. And then I, I, I encountered the King James Version, uh, say, when... I was in college, and there were courses where we read the Bible in translation. And how did you feel about the King James Version when you first read about it? Because from what I know, at least some translators, they feel that the King James Version is stuffily archaic, and you agree up to a point, but, for example, this translator, Stephen Mitchell, he argues that the King James Version is, like, so Elizabethan that it's 
different from the Hebrew. And you agree up to the point, especially when it's poetry and prophets involved. But for the most part, you have a more respectful view of the King James Version and of William Tyndale and Geneva and the whole tradition that the that those Bible translators implied or were part of. Why is that? Yeah, yeah I, I, as I said, uh, we, despite the the various problems with, with the um, the King James version, which I, I indicated a few minutes ago, um, there there has not been a translation in English since that that has the the, the literary authority of the King James Version. Uh, uh, and I would cite two partial explanations. One, of course, is that they borrowed very generously from the translation of William Tyndall in the 1520s. And Tyndall was a, a, he was a solitary translator. He, he did not he he did the New Testament and then he did some books of the Old Testament before he was executed by the Inquisition for his troubles, and uh, he was a translator of uh, genius. Uh, I think uh, it's interesting in the King James Version that even when there is no Tyndall text to borrow from. Uh, I think he showed them the way. For example, the the King James Version of um, Ecclesiastes, which we now, most most of us in biblical studies, call Kohelet, uh, is um, it's quite good. I mean, there are things that are wrong with it. I think vanity of vanities is not a good translation of the Hebrew and vexation of spirit is totally wrong uh, but it's quite wonderful in its way if you you read out loud the opening chapter of Ecclesiastes in the King James Version and they did not have a Tyndall text to follow he never got to, to that book but uh, he provided a, a kind of model for them of how to go about translating the Bible now the, the second a reason for the virtue of the King James Version is that these uh, committees assembled by King James uh, were uh, almost entirely, I think, uh, learned churchmen. Uh, and their learning was pretty impressive. You know, they knew Hebrew and Greek, of course, Latin, uh, Aramaic, and uh, some of them even knew Arabic. Um, they were in touch with the literary culture of their age. So Lancelot Andrews, the leading figure of the King James translators, who was a bishop of London, um, was one of the fine prose stylists of the early uh, 17th century. We know this because we have his sermons. Uh, And that, alas, is no longer the situation. I, I think that the modern translators are um, cut off from the uh, literary culture of our age, and it shows quite painfully in their translation. 
So what is the literary culture of our age that the modern translators should have been connected to but you feel are not connected to? I know Cormac McCarthy is one example. He uses a lot of parataxis like all those ands in his greatest books like Blood Meridian, for Yeah, example. sure. Uh, I mean, he's very influenced by, by the, the King James uh, translation uh, as, uh, uh, of course, Hemingway was before him. But I, I don't necessarily mean uh, writers that sound like the Bible. What I mean is that if you immerse yourself in contemporary literary culture, uh, if you read Nabokov, who is very unlike the Bible, if if you read, I don't know, uh, Margaret Atwood, Philip Roth, uh, if you read the the poetry of uh, Robert Frost, uh, even uh, of uh, Wallace Stevens, you become sensitized to the range of expressive possibilities of the English language. Uh, and, and I think that the people who are doing Ph or have done PhDs in biblical studies at Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Yale and the University of Pennsylvania are are not really in touch with all this. I'll, I'll give you one example. Um, uh, I was friendly with uh, an eminent biblical scholar uh, of the previous generation, whom I, I won't mention by name, and uh, he had participated in one of these committees that produced uh, a new translation of the Bible. And when my Genesis came out, because we were friends, I, I sent him a copy, and uh, he wrote back trying to be diplomatic, but it was clear that, that he hated the translation because it was quite unlike what he and his fellow committee members were doing. And one of the things he said was that you cannot repeat and again and again the way you do in your translation because the English language will not tolerate it. Uh, uh, what you have to do is, is reorder the syntax and eliminate many of the ands. And I wrote back to him th that, um, uh, in fact, I had spent a lot of my career studying style in, in English prose, and the use of parataxis, that is, parallel uh, clauses beginning with an, was a definite resource for English writers, and for my money, the uh, the best piece uh, of extended prose poetry in the English language in the 20th century was Molly Bloom's soliloquy at the end of James Joyce's uh, Ulysses, and that has and, and, again and again. Uh, now, uh, my friend didn't respond, but I, I have a suspicion, uh, as erudite and intelligent a man as he was, that he uh, probably had never read Ulysses. So you see, that, that would be one illustration. And in another book of yours, you wrote a lot about how American writers were influenced by the King James Bible, like Herman Melville and William Faulkner. 
both of them are very different writers, but they have a similar love of like a lot of exuberant language. Both of them were influenced by the Bible's themes and sometimes by the Bible's style. And right. When you were doing when you were doing biblical poetry, you were started with the Psalms, right? And why did you look to the Psalms? What is the chief appeal of that? What drew me to the Psalms? Yes. Well, uh, of course, I, I should explain to your listeners that, that I originally had no idea that I would end up translating the whole Hebrew Bible. So I, I didn't go in any particular order, you know. Uh, first I did Genesis, uh, then basically Samuel. And then uh, I thought, well, what would be a good biblical book to uh, translate since uh, I had gotten into the momentum of it? And uh, it occurred to me that Psalms was uh, a, a very important biblical text for countless numbers of readers. And there was some really great poetry in it, so that for me as a literary person, it would be uh, an interesting challenge to try to convey the, the, something of the greatness of the poetry. So uh, I uh, moved on to Psalms. Excellent. And I want to read Psalm 23 in the King James Version, and then I can compare it to your version. Psalm right. 23, the King James, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Your version reads, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In grass meadows he makes me lie down, by quiet waters guides me. My life he brings back, he leads me on pathways of justice for his name's sake. Though I walk in the veil of death's shadow, I fear no harm, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, it is they that console me. You set out a table before me in the face of my foes. You moisten my head with oil. My cup overflows. Let but goodness and kindness pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for many long days. I love both translations, to be honest with you. I think both of them have something to offer. I think you have a much more concise version of it and a much more sensual version of it, especially in the King James it has the word anoint, you have the word moisten, which in your explanatory note, you have the verb dishen is not the one used for anointment, and its associations are more like luxuriant, sensual meanings. Right. So uh, that, uh, yeah, I agree with you that, that the, um, the King James Version of this psalm is quite beautiful, uh, and uh, yea, though I walk in the uh, valley of the shadow of death, uh, is beautiful, although it's more like a line from uh, Walt Whitman's poetry, and of course he was very influenced by the King James Psalms, than like the Hebrew, because um, 
it, it has like triple the number of words and syllables uh, as the Hebrew does, uh, and, and I try to get it more compact. But the, here's the crucial thing, uh, and I'll, I'll begin with, with what you just noted about um, uh, moistened rather than anointed. Uh, the 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 verb limshoach in, in uh, biblical Hebrew uh, to anoint uh, is reserved for two functions. One is uh, the um, consecration of uh, the high priest, and the other is the uh, consecration of the king. That is uh, in, in Biblically, you don't really say the king was crowned, although they did wear crowns, but you say the, the king was anointed. Now, uh, the, the poet's choice of a different verb, a verb that has to do with luxuriance, uh, has different implications. So the, the, that is, the, there's nothing sacral or royal about the um, uh, this act, but it, it's um, it's an act of uh, physical pleasure, like, you know, very much like in Homer, where you, you recall when guests come from a journey, they bathe him and then they rub him with, with olive oil. It's the same thing in, in, in the, the Bible. Now, uh, two other points: um, the um, uh, 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 thou restorest my soul, uh, as I said before, the, uh, there ain't no soul in the Bible, uh, and, and so I, I have uh, re- reviving my life. And and then at the very end, it's a small difference, but with, with a really big difference in implication. The, the, that is, uh, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, uh, and I have... Uh, uh, dwell in the house of the Lord for many long days. So the Hebrew doesn't say forever. It says, yamim, literally for a length of days. Um, and so what is the difference? That is, if you say, I, d- I shall d- uh, dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that really suggests, and it, it picks up the, the uh, suggestion of thou restoreth my soul, that the house of the Lord is the big house up in heaven, of which there is no inkling in the biblical worldview. What the poet is saying is that what I would love to do is hang out in Jerusalem in the temple precincts. So uh, the, the difference between forever and many long days is a huge one. I completely agree. And interestingly, a Christian translation called the Geneva Bible has, and I shall dwell a long season in the house of the Lord, which is closer to what the Hebrew text says. Right, right, it is. Actually, I hadn't checked that out in the Geneva Bible. That's good. So what's the general outline of the Hebrew Bible, poetry, law, prose included? What does the Hebrew Bible have to say to us? What's its general story, if you could describe it that way? Oh, well... I actually think uh, there is not one general story. You you could argue that that there is a 
general story in the five books of Moses, even though scholarship has long seen it, it's, uh, uh, it comprises multiple sources, but still, you know, you, you, you have beginning with, with uh, what you read from chapter 12, you, you have Abram being enjoined to go to, to a land that he's never seen, and then there's the banishment from the land, and the enslavement in Egypt and the return to the land. Um, so it, it, that particular story, which stretches through a number of books, is uh, very land-oriented. And then a kind of um, ominous coda is added to it, beginning with warnings in uh, Deuteronomy and then going on in the subsequent books, which is that the promise of the land uh, flowing with milk and honey is contingent. If Israel does not honor its obligations and its covenant with God, then it will be banished from, from the land. And of course, this is something that later books contend with. But what I would go on to say is that different books have different stories and even different outlooks. Uh, since I mentioned the land, uh, let me cite a late biblical book, uh, Esther, in which the land of Israel is absolutely never mentioned. Uh, what that book envisages is a, um, a permanent uh, a, a habitation of in the diaspora. Um, and then you have these dissident books, uh, such as um, uh, Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, uh, and uh, and Job, that, that propose views uh, of um, God and humankind uh, and uh, 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 the moral calculus that that are very different from Psalms or, or, or from. Proverbs. So I, I think that's part of the, the the greatness of the Hebrew Bible. After we should remember that it's the books included in, in the canonical Bible um, were written over a period uh, of many centuries. If you include the oldest poems, it's uh, nearly a thousand years. And so it's hardly surprising that that, uh, that they reflect uh, different viewpoints. And I uh, love the the uh, the variety and even the contentiousness of these different books. For example, um, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are um, absolutely uncompromising on the idea that that there should be no intercourse social or sexual or cultic with the um, the other peoples that are present in uh, the, the kingdom of Judah to, to which the exiles have returned. On the other hand, um, the book of Ruth, written at the same time, uh, uh uh, develops a scenario in which a woman from Moab 
one of the traditional enemies of Israel is the devoted uh, daughter-in-law to uh, 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 Naomi, a woman from uh, uh, the kingdom of Judah, and in the end marries a man who is a Judite and um, becomes the progenitrix of the line that leads to King David. So this is almost shockingly divergent from Ezra and Nehemiah. And when I read the book of Ruth and the King James and any Christian Bible, the shocking power of that doesn't seem as evident because Ruth is placed just before Samuel, whereas in the Hebrew Bible it's placed alongside the writings, the Ketuvim, of the whole right, Tanakh. Right. And I want to transition to the prophets now. And in, there's, okay, a verse, sure. there's a verse in Malachi which says that God hates divorce. And do you think that's a response to the whole phenomenon of divorcing the foreign wives that took place in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah because... That is, God hates... Uh, I didn't hear the end of the, that. When it says that God hates divorce and you are crying and you're doing wrong by divorcing, remember the wife of your youth oh, in the yes, book of Malachi. Yes, yes. You think it's responding to Ezra and Nehemiah's attempts to, like, get the people of Israel to divorce their foreign wives? That's possible. Uh, but that has to be conjectural. Yeah. I've, I've heard that thesis... And I don't know if I entirely agree with it, but it's definitely plausible based on the idea of how the Bible can have differing perspectives. And then there's a verse in Hosea which shows that I will declare judgment on the house of Jehu for whatever happened in Jezreel. And what happened in Jezreel in the book of Kings was that Jehu eliminated the house of Ahab because he was anointed by the prophet to do that. And yet in Hosea... Right, and he, was, he did this quite ruthlessly slaughtering large numbers of people. Okay. And in the King's account, it seems that this is depicted for the most part as positive. And in Hosea, it's depicted as something that's going to bring judgment if the sin of Jezreel is in fact referring to the whole elimination of the house of Ahab. What do you think? Yeah, well, these are different uh, viewpoints. And, of course, there there is something that, that runs through a number of the, the prophetic books, uh, which is, uh, you might say, um, uh, a certain um, ambiguity that, that is foreign rulers who um, attack... Uh, the people of Israel in, in the prophets uh, are viewed as uh, uh, the uh, the Lord's rod. You know, the, the, they're his instrument to punish Israel for its dereliction. Um, so that should be okay. But then they're not forgiven for doing this because, after all, they've carried out the punishment in a particularly ruthless way, and they themselves are destined to be punished. So it's perhaps something similar. So what are some of the difficulties that you may have run into in translating the prophets, the prophets being Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Nahum, and all these other prophets? (laughs) Well, first... uh, there are textual difficulties, and I should explain the following, that um, poetry and, and most of the, uh, uh, or the preponderance, maybe not most, but the preponderance of 
the prophets are cast in poetry. The uh, poetry created problems for the ancient scribes because it uses a vocabulary that's not used in uh, the prose narratives. That, that seems to be a specialized poetic diction. Some of it uh, probably archaic. And when the scribes didn't always understand what they were transcribing. Uh, and when a scribe doesn't understand a word, uh, he may substitute another word and then make hash out of the, the, the text. I'll give you a, a, an English um, uh, analog. This, say you have a scribe um, copying a text in English, and he comes to the word discrete, meaning distinct, right? Uh, spelled D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E. And the scribe doesn't know that word. He says, hey, the, the, the way you, you spell discrete is D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T. So he substitutes that, and he makes nonsense out of the text that he's copying. So th there are all these places in the prophets where it's hard to make out what the original Hebrew might have me might have been. Uh, you can get some help by uh, variant manuscripts, by uh, 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 the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, if the, there's a, 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 a Dead Sea text for what you're working on. Uh, also, um, everybody uses the ancient translations, so that it's the Septuagint, the Greek, uh, the, um, uh, the Latin, the Vulgate, and the... Uh, early Aramaic translations, because each of these sets of translators had a different Hebrew text in front of them that varied in some uh, details from the received text that, that uh, uh, which has been the basis of uh, all modern translations. And the King James Version. So, so you can wrestle with those things, but you, you do come across many lines of poetry that don't make much sense, and it's hard to figure out what the original Hebrew meant. Okay, so that's the exasperating challenge. Now, the the more um, let's say piquant challenge, maybe even enjoyable challenge, is where you have um, word play and sound play uh, in, in the Hebrew that's important for the, uh, uh, the meaning, and you, uh, you want to uh, come up with some sort of English equivalent. Uh, I'll give you two quick examples from the early chapters uh, of Isaiah. Uh, when Isaiah is uh, making a uh, is criticizing the perversion of values in the kingdom of Judah, he says these are just two words in the Hebrew, Sarayich Sorim. Now the first word Sarayich means officers, nobles, uh, something like that. 
the second word, sororim, means wayward. But you, you, you can hear the sound in the Hebrew, sarayach, and then sororim. So the, these two nouns uh, are um, uh, similar in sound, but opposite in meaning which is Isaiah's way of uh, conveying the notion that, that values have been flipped from good to bad. So uh, I couldn't quite get a, a, a full English equivalent, but what, what the way I translate is, your nobles are knaves. So at least you have the, the alliteration. It's a, less of a complete... Uh, alliteration than the double alliteration in the Hebrew. Or another example, in the uh, parable of the vineyard in uh, chapter 5 of uh, Isaiah, uh, he says, um, and he hoped for righteousness. I'm sorry, he he hoped for justice, and the word for justice is mishpat. And look, a blight, and the word for blight is mispach. So you move from mishpat to a word that sounds quite like it, mispach, which means the opposite. And then in the next line, and he hoped for righteousness, that's staka, and look, a scream, tzaka. This so is from your translation, right? Same. So uh, I thought you had to do something with this. So uh, I allow myself a slight uh, 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 um, amount of license, uh, and I translate, and he hoped for justice and look jaundice, and he hoped for righteousness and look wretchedness. Now, wretchedness is not a literal translation of scream, and scream is maybe, not maybe, it's definitely sharper, but still it, it gets something of this flipping of values through a play on words. I completely agree. I almost was going to bring that example up because it was one of my favorite verses in the Hebrew Bible for that pun. So what do you think the prophets are about in general compared to the poetic books, the wisdom books, and the patri- the patriarchal tales? What do you think is their unique salient feature? Okay, well, uh, first, uh, to explain this, um, I should say something about why they very often cast their po- their um, prophecies in poetry. Uh, the... Well, there are two reasons. One is that they introduce many of their prophecies with, thus said the Lord. Uh, So if God is speaking, that is, they claim to be quoting God directly, well, you would expect God to use elevated speech. So uh, elevated speech is poetry. But the second reason, which may be even more compelling, is that poetry is literally memorable. That is, you can memorize it because, well, in English we have rhyme, which helps you to memorize poetry. In Hebrew, there's the semantic parallelism 
between clauses uh, and the the, the rhythmic uh, equivalence between clauses. So uh, as the prophet speaks, these words are incised in the memory uh, uh, of his audience. And then, of course, it's, it's memorable in the sense that it's striking, it's powerful, it gets its message across in a way that's not easy to forget. Um, so uh, they frequently use poetry, and they use poetry uh, mainly as a, a medium of castigation. Uh, that is, when we say prophetic, we, we tend to think... Um, predicting. Predicting the future. And the, the future is involved because they, they keep telling their Israelite audience what's going to happen if they continue behaving this badly. But uh, the real point is a, a scathing attack on uh, the exploitation of the poor, the, the, the uh, amassing of wealth through illicit means, uh, uh, and of course uh, the, the exploitation of uh, the, the poor and defenseless, the widow and the sojourner, and, and then uh, especially in Ezekiel, uh, and um, to some extent, in uh, to a good extent, in Jeremiah, um, idolatry. So uh, the the uh, the poetry is used for castigation. Um, it also is used for consolation. That is a vision of restoration after the destruction, and especially in the uh, the great anonymous poet of uh, the Babylonian exile, whose prophecies are appended to the book of Isaiah. There is this luminous, comforting, radiant poetry of how Israel will be restored and returned to its land. So uh, th these are emphases that you don't really find in the other books. And in Isaiah 40, I think you did a tra I think you gave an excerpt of your translation on a website for Isaiah 40 verse 1, comfort o comfort my people says your God. The King James and the Handel's Messiah has comfort ye comfort ye my people saith your God. A Hebrew is Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, Lo Elohim. Yeah. And I definitely like what you do with the Isaiah 40, basically. I also like the all flesh is grass and all its trust, like the flowers of the field. Grass dries up, the flower fades, for the Lord's wind has blown upon it. The people indeed is grass. Grass dries up, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. It has this kind of power. It's really memorable. It definitely inspired Walt Whitman for good reason. Yeah, I, I mean, that's what you just read out is, I think, a good example of um, uh, how I strive, and I think there I succeeded, in getting across the, the compactness of the Hebrew poetry. And how does, like, Isaiah 
How do you feel about Isaiah's supposed messianic prophecies, which we Christians have taken to refer to Jesus Christ, like in Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, and not to mention all the suffering right. servant songs? What do well, you think? Now, now, this is not just my view, but I think by and large the view of biblical scholars and has been for a long time, that uh, these are not prophecies of... Well, well uh, uh, let me back up a moment and say something about the, the word Messiah. It's um, a loaded word for us in English because of the New Testament. And uh, when we hear Messiah, we think of Christ the Messiah and Handel's magnificent or, uh, oratorio, uh, uh, the, the Messiah, is all about that, tapping into a lot of Isaiah in particular. Um, but the biblical ma- uh, uh, Messiah, Mashiach, is a political term. It, it refers to the anointed king. Uh, as I said before, anointment rather than crowning is the, the um, supreme token uh, of being invested with kingship. Um, so these prophecies uh, that you uh, refer to in Isaiah are really prophecies of an ideal future king who uh, will bring um, peace, above all justice, and prosperity to the land. Um, What I have to add, uh, there's one tricky dimension uh, of biblical prophecy, that it, um, it works through hyperbole. I would say that there there may be an intrinsic hyperbolic momentum in a lot of biblical poetry, uh, partly due to the fact that that, uh, the imagery and the the language in general moves from the first half of the line to the second half of the line by stepping things up, by intensifying, by heightening. Um, So... Although I don't think that the biblical prophets were envisioning a um, an end of history, the the coming of the kingdom that you have in, in the Gospels, um, both their radiant visions of a, an ideal age and uh, the, their um, their visions of devastating destruction are so hyperbolically powerful that the the seeds of eschatology and apocalypse are there in the poetry, although that isn't what they literally meant to say. Which brings me to the fact that Daniel is not considered a prophet, a Navim in the Hebrew Bible, but he's named as a prophet in the Christian Bible. Daniel is more of a visionary slash seer. Right, right. Yeah, I I, I think that actually the Hebrew canon got it right. Uh, That is, um, 
first, uh, y- you you don't have um, the usual scenario for 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 prophets. Uh, uh, the the word of the Lord came to him, or a dedication scene where he uh, declares himself uh, unworthy. Um, he he doesn't appear to, uh, and he doesn't perform the, this primary prophetic um, uh, function of castigation. Uh, but he's a predictor, and as I said, prediction is um, is not uh, really the the uh, essential role that the prophets play. Now, here's something else. Well, there are two other things that that set him off from the prophets. Of course, you you have all this narrative material. Uh, that, that that is uh, um, uh, uh, Daniel in, in the, the uh, lion's den, his three uh, companions in the fiery furnace, and so forth. Um, and when we get to the predictive part uh, of uh, Daniel, he switches from Aramaic to Hebrew. Now, why does he do this? He does this because he himself, whoever he was, uh, wants to align what he's doing, what, he, uh, what he's writing, with the biblical prophets who, of course, wrote in Hebrew. But th- there's something a little bit off. That, that is, uh, the, uh, even though I, I think I have a good understanding of biblical Hebrew, and I, I can... Uh, manage well enough in biblical Aramaic. When I moved from the Aramaic to the Hebrew, I found it was much harder to understand. And the reason why it was harder to understand is that the Hebrew was not very good. That is, it it used uh, familiar Hebrew terms in weird ways. It it had trouble managing... um, the Hebrew syntax, the verb tenses, and so forth. And it, it, it dawned on me that uh, the writer at this point was using a language that he was not altogether comfortable in. That is, the language that, that was his language was Aramaic. So there, there is something, I would say, not quite authentic about the um prophetic part of the book of Daniel, uh, and uh, and I think that a Jewish tradition wisely did not uh, set the book with, with the prophets, but with miscellaneous writings. I have a quick question about text. So do you think the Masoretic text, which is the standard Hebrew text, is generally reliable for the most part? even though we also have these ancient witnesses in the Septuagint and the Vulgate, which you have used in the past and you still use? Well, generally reliable is a hard call. That is, um, uh, any ancient text, this is certainly true of the Greek texts, I mean the, 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 the uh, classical Greek texts, I'm not talking about the New Testament, but it's a problem with, with, with the New Testament too. Um, any ancient text 
transmitted through generation upon generation of scribes uh, where there are different manuscripts of whatever the original was and therefore different manuscript traditions. Um, It's it's bound to um, to have uh, misrepresentations uh, of the no longer recoverable uh, original text. So the Masoretic text, uh, I would say, is by and large pretty good, but there's certainly plenty of mistakes in it, um, large and small. As I said, places in in the prophets, especially in the poetry of Job, where the Hebrew has been reduced to gibberish, in uh, scribal uh, transmission. And then there are places that you can spot where you can see that for whatever reason there was either a glitch on the part of the the transcribers of the Masoretic text or they were using a, a, a faulty manuscript. For example, in the story of Cain and Abel, uh, this is a kind of easy illustration. In the story of Cain and Abel, uh, we have, and Cain said to Abel, and then there's no quoted speech, but in the, the very next words, he kills him. Now, this is really strange because uh, there's nowhere else in the entire Bible, to my knowledge, where you have the formula for introduction of direct speech, and X said to Y, and then no direct speech. And there clearly is a kind of jump in the narrative continuum. So the Septuagint, the the, uh, ancient Greek translation, had a Hebrew text evidently before them that read, and Cain said to Abel, let us go to the field, which makes perfect sense. They go out to the field, nobody's around, and then they can kill them. So um, in that case, clearly the, 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 the Masoretic text was not reliable. Thank you for the explanation. I want to ask, what's your favorite book of the Bible in general? My personal favorite is either the Book of Samuel or the Song of Solomon. Well, this is a, a little bit like asking a uh, a, a parent of uh, a number of children which is his favorite child. Uh, I would say, um, in terms of narrative, my two favorites would be Genesis and especially the the Joseph story, which is certainly one of the the great story. I think Tolstoy said it's one of the the great stories in our body of literature. And and then Samuel, particularly for the the long narrative of Saul and Samuel. Um, And then, uh, like you, I really love the Song of Songs. It's just a wonderful body of... uh, love poetry still seems fresh and sensually alive and poetically inventive 
after well over 2,000 years. Um, and um, then I, I, I guess I, uh, I think Job, even though the, the, there are parts, as I said, at least local places where you can't make out w- what the original was, um, it, it is still a... a uh, a riveting and bravely unblinking vision of the question of divine justice. I agree. And and the poetry is often quite astounding. It's certainly some of the greatest poetry that has come out of the whole ancient world in any language. And some others... Other miscellaneous questions, Herman Melville or William Faulkner? Uh, pardon me? Miscellaneous questions like on preferences, at least one or two I will ask. So do you prefer Herman Melville or William Faulkner? Um, I'm sorry, uh, your voice is getting a little faint again. I'm just asking some miscellaneous questions. Do you okay, prefer Herman Melville or William Faulkner? Um... Faulkner in the Bible? Well, well, Faulkner isn't in the Bible. I meant do you prefer Melville or Faulkner in terms of, like, American authors? Oh, yeah. Well, actually, Faulkner is um, a, a really interesting instance of the relation of American writer to the Bible. Uh, I'll tell you why. Um, his... In many respects, his prose is nothing like the Bible. Uh, uh, in contrast, say, to Hemingway, where, where the, there's a, an obvious, uh, strong influence of the King James Version, uh, which even signals to the reader by, by um, uh, using a title from the King James Ecclesiastes uh, and beginning with, with a long epigraph from the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. But Faulkner's not like this. He has these convoluted sentences, which are nothing like the Bible, and uh, he, he relishes a certain kind of vocabulary which is polysyllabic and uh, uh, uses some fairly arcane terms uh, interestingly, when uh, I think it was David Bromwich reviewed my book on um, uh, Pen of Iron, uh, uh, he scolded me for um, uh, Faulkner saying that I was wrong in saying that, that Faulkner's style was like the Bible. And of course, I did not say, I suspect he skimmed that chapter. I did not say that Faulkner's style was like the the Bible, but Faulkner was an intense reader of the of the King James Version. He had a a multi-volume edition of it on his shelves, and he claimed that that he reread it from end to end periodically. I don't know if this is literally true, but he obviously paid a lot of attention to it. And uh, what you have in Faulkner is certain um, key terms that he picks up from the Bible, 
that are almost like uh, I would say uh, magnets uh, of thematic significance. I mean, words like birthright and blessing and curse and land. Uh, and uh, these are, are tremendously important in a number of Faulkner's novels, but especially in, in Absalom. Absalom, which I, I think is arguably the the greatest American novel of the 20th century. I think so, too, though I think Blood Meridian is also a great competitor, in my humble opinion. Okay. <laughs> I personally prefer Melville, I think, though I love Faulkner. Oh, I love Melville, as you know. And do you prefer Dostoevsky or Tolstoy? From what I know and from what I've read, I think I prefer Tolstoy in general. Well, uh, that, that's a kind of hard call. Um, I mean, th- there's, of course, uh, a, a, um, a feverish intensity and a dynamism in... Dostoevsky, uh, but uh, I love the kind of amplitude of representation of the human world in Tolstoy. I mean, uh, um, uh, uh, Anna Karenina, maybe more than War and Peace, but I actually have to reread War and Peace one of these days, but Anna Karenina kind of lingers in my mind uh, for um, uh, all kinds of reasons. Uh, the, the the representation of Kitty going to her first ball, Levin uh, 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 reaping the harvest with, with, with his his peasants, uh, and then the, the very complicated and, and, and rich representation uh, of uh, Anna in all her faults, but uh, her faults, nevertheless, she, she's, uh, I think, a more appealing character in the end than Madame Bovary and Poom, probably to some degree based. I haven't read Anna Karenina, but from what I know, Tolstoy, he was intending to, com- to to condemn adultery, but he ends up like creating a character that he ends up kind of liking for the most part. That's from what I have heard. I can't say what I think because yeah, I have yeah, not but, read Anna Karenina but, but, yet. Uh, I mean, she's this uh, sensual, imaginative woman, um, much more imaginative, I, I, I think, uh, than uh, Flaubert's uh, Emma Bovary, um, who is married to a kind of um, uh, stiff, proper man, a a high-ranking bureaucrat, uh, who clearly physically repels her. uh, uh, Tolstoy does this wonderfully by talking about how his... uh, protruding ears repel her. It's a kind of little, little uh, synecdoche for, for his repel, repulsive physical presence. Uh, and so she's taken by this, um, uh, smitten with, I should say, but by this dashing, handsome young officer. 
But in the end, she becomes very self-destructive, and it is a book with a tragic ending for her, certainly. Thank you so much. It's nice to discuss stuff outside the Bible, even though the Bible itself is endlessly enriching and edifying to talk about. It was really nice talking with you. Until next time, you have been listening to The Letter of Liberty, where we have discussed literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit wcwp.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.